Well, I hope you're as excited as I am to launch into Second Peter. Let me try that again. I hope you're as excited as I am. <laughs> it really is a great book. Uh, I don't know how many of you uh, have read through it a number of times, as I suggested last week. But it, the more you read through it, the more you discover, and the more it really does speak to your life in some very, very profound ways. There's, there's so much that Peter has to say to us in this, uh, in this three, three simple chapters. Um, we're going to jump in and we're going to look at verse 1 this morning. We are going to complete verse 1. So we are going to make great headway. We started last week. As we began the study last week, uh, you remember we began to talk about the purpose of the letter. What's his theme? Why does he write these three chapters? Why does he write this short letter? And who does he write it to? What's its purpose? We suggested that the purpose was to warn these first century Christians who are uh, indeed scattered throughout the uh, Roman provinces to warn them against false teachers and false teaching. That's a problem. Uh, it was a problem in the beginning, and it's been a problem ever since in the life of the church. Uh, he doesn't identify any particular false teaching. He doesn't identify any particular false teachers. Uh, but rather, in chapter 2, he devotes uh, that chapter to describing uh, that which characterizes false teachers. The idea being is if you, can, if you know what characterizes a false teacher, you're easy, more easily able to recognize a false teacher. And uh, uh, otherwise, because the teaching can always change, and you'd have to keep up on all these false teachings, it's much easier just to be able to recognize uh, a false teacher. Now, he also says, if you, so we want to have that defense. We want to be able to recognize false teachers. But he also says, if we're going to be protected against false doctrine, there's three things we must know. Do you remember what the three things were? What's the first thing? We must know what? Salvation. Know our salvation. It's not enough to know, say, well, I, I, I'm saved. Do you know your salvation? Do you know what that means to be saved? Do you know uh, theologically how that fleshes out? Do you know how to explain it? Can you articulate what it means to be a Christian from a perspective of salvation? So we must know our salvation. Secondly, if we are to be protected against false doctrine, we must also know, what's the second thing, you remember? The Scriptures. We must know the Scriptures. If you don't know how you're saved, and if you don't know what salvation is all about, and if you don't know the Scriptures, some people are going to run rings around you. How many times have you ever been confronted, maybe by a Jehovah's Witness coming to your door, uh, and, and these people have memorized tons and tons of Scripture, and they have their theology down pat, though it's erroneous, and they can run circles around most Christians, and most Christians go, duh, and they slam the door in their face, because they don't know what to say. So we've got to know Scripture. And the third thing that Peter says we must know is we must know our what? Our sanctification. That's speaking to the issue of holiness, ongoing holiness, and growth, spiritual growth in our life. We must know our sanctification. Now, we had, when we left off last time, we left off with, very simply, Peter introducing himself. Simon Peter. Do you remember that? Simon Peter. That's his greeting. And that opened our discussion of salvation. The first 11 verses are devoted to the discussion of salvation and how we know our salvation. So as we work our way down through these 11 verses, as we come away from that section and from that study, we're going to have a really firm grasp and understanding so that we can know our salvation. It's a rich, rich study. So he introduces himself, and that's the introduction to our salvation, to our discussion of it. Uh, uses both names, Simon Peter. Simon, a reference to his old self. At times, Peter acted like his old self. At times, we act like our old selves, don't we? I find it very easy to relate to Peter. Simon, a reference to his old self. Peter, the reference to his new self. And so, Peter stands by virtue of his very name as a dramatic illustration of salvation. And then he further identifies himself. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. 
The word servant is literally translated from the Greek word doulos. And many of you know the word doulos uh, means slave. It was the lowest rank in that culture. It was the rank of utter humiliation. A slave. And the NIV translates it servant. It's more literally and I think better translated as slave. Now if you look at that, he says uh, uh, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. There is an excellent balance of humility and authority. There's an excellent balance there of humility and authority. The perfect balance for a spiritual leader. Would you agree with me? A spiritual leader should exhibit humility, genuine humility, and as well, authority. He says he's a slave. He is a doulos. I'm a slave, he says. When was the last time we said that? I'm a slave. Turn to your neighbor. Say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. When he says that, that puts him in a place of utter submission. A slave is a person who is under utter submission. That puts him in a place of utter duty, utter obedience. That puts him in a place of utter humility. That puts him on the level, now note this please, that puts him on the level with all other believers who serve the Lord Jesus Christ. In effect, we are all slaves. We are all slaves. Now, we may, we may identify with that in words, but do we identify that with that in practice? Do we, do we really see ourselves as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you look back through the, uh, through the Bible, all of the great characters listed in the Bible they carried that title of humiliation. They were all slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Moses, the great leader and lawgiver of Israel, was a doulos of God, a slave of God. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 5. Joshua, the great commander of Israel, also was a doulos of God. We find that in Joshua 24, 29. David, the greatest of the kings, was a doulos of God. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18. Paul himself, a doulos of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. James, a doulos of Christ. James chapter 1, verse 1. Jude calls himself also a doulos of Christ. They all use that very same word. They all characterize themselves, consider themselves, view themselves as slaves of God. Now the word servant is often used. But if you look back into the history of the word, you'll find that it really means slave. Indeed, according to Amos chapter 3, verse 7, uh, Amos speaks of all the prophets of the Old Testament were indeed servants of God. Every believer in the New Testament becomes God's slave. In Acts chapter 2, verse 18, even on my servants, and the word doulos is used there, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So again, you see this word over and over and over used. The whole idea is that we are slaves of God, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter is identifying himself with all of us. He is humble as Christ's slave. And though he was the greatest of the twelve, and though he was their spokesman, and indeed, if you read the, the first chapters of the book of Acts, and you see... Peter, I mean, even in the Gospels, Peter is, is a larger-than-life guy. Uh, you come away, you can't help but be impressed with Peter. Sometimes we joke about him, but this guy was tremendously used of God, tremendously used. He was years and years ahead of uh, Paul the Apostle, even. Tremendous guy. Uh, though he was the greatest preacher of all of the Apostles, the leader of the, of the church at Jerusalem, he was, in spite of all that, he was a slave of Jesus Christ. I want to underscore that. That's an important, important theme. William Barclay, in his commentary, writes this. He says, To call the Christian the doulos of God means that he is inalienably possessed by God. In other words, owned by God. We belong to him. The Bible says we don't belong to ourselves. We've been purchased with a price. In the ancient world, a master possessed his slaves 
in the same sense as he possessed his tools. A servant can change his master, but a slave cannot. We are inalienably possessed by God. If you're a Christian, you belong to God. You do not belong to yourself. This is a critical understanding. The Christian, again, belongs to God. To call the Christian the doulos of God means that he is unqualifiedly at the disposal of God. In the ancient world, the master could do what he liked with his slave. He had even the power of life and death over the slave. The Christian has no rights of his own, for all of his rights are surrendered to God. Ooh, I have no rights? Nope. Where have we heard that before? Our life and all of our rights are surrendered to God. This is important if we are to, if we are to view ourselves rightly and through the eyes of Scripture and through the eyes of God indeed. To call the Christian the doulos of God means that he owes unquestioning obedience to God. Unquestioning obedience. Rather than saying, why, why, why? Which we typically will do, right? We say, why, why me? Why do I have to go through this? Why, why is this happening to me? A master's command was a slave's only law in ancient times. In any situation, the Christian has but one question to ask. And that question is this, Lord, what will you have me do? The command of God is his only law. Rather than questioning God, rather than arguing with God, rather than saying, why, 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 why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to do this? We say, Lord, what's your will? What, what do you want me to do? What's your command? That's a slave. That's the appropriate response of a person who understands their position. We're slaves. That doesn't demean us. But it speaks to the issue of who we are. Would you rather be slaves of God or slaves to the enemy? Slaves of God. Lastly, uh, Barclay says, to call the Christian the doulos of God means that he must constantly be in the service of God. In the ancient world, the slave had literally no time of his own, no holidays, no leisure. All his time belonged to his master. The Christian cannot, either deliberately or not, compartmentalize life into the time and activities which belong to God and the time and activities in which he does what he likes. The Christian is necessarily the man every moment of whose time is spent in the service of God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you have to become a vocational missionary or pastor or such? No. It it just means very simply the same thing the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Lord, I want to serve you. I want to redeem this time. I want to redeem this energy. I want to redeem this effort. I want you glorified to how I live my life. Proverbs says, acknowledge him in all of your ways. All of your ways. And so, uh, we, are, we are slaves of God. We are slaves of God. And those things characterize the first century slave. All, all those people in that ancient time, they knew exactly what Peter meant. When he said, when he introduced himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what that implied. And he is basically saying he was a humble slave. He was bound by duty. He was bound by duty to do whatever his master told him, no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. That was Peter. If you read at the end of John's Gospel, the end of John chapter 21, do you remember when Jesus, the risen Christ, uh, confronted Peter? And he called him Simon, didn't he? What did Jesus want? He wanted this. He says, if you love me. He said, he said Peter, do you love me? What did Peter say? Lord, you know I love you, right? So Jesus said to him, in effect, if you love me, then do what I tell you. Do what I tell you. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my lambs. Care for them. Follow me. It will cost you your life, but obey me. That's extreme. That's extreme from our perspective. But that's what he's calling us to. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are also then a slave of Jesus Christ. Your time is not your own. Your life is not your own. Everything you do, you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Lord, your will. I want your will. I want your will. Now, I don't know about you, but this is really convicting. This is convicting to me. 
I've, I've had to study through this. I've known this in the past. I've studied this, taught this in the past. But again, going back through this material, rereading it, fleshing it out, uh, has been a convicting exercise for me. Plus, I have to preach it to myself four times this weekend. <laughs> I hope we understand who we are. Slaves of Jesus Christ. And then Peter says, turning from that title of humility, slave, he turns to a title of dignity. He is also an apostle of Jesus Christ. So while on the one hand he humbles himself and he says, in effect, we are all slaves of Jesus Christ, on the other hand, he represents himself as a spokesman for Christ. And this elevates him to a rather unique position, a unique office as divinely called and divinely commissioned as a witness of the resurrected Christ. That's what an apostle would be. Uh, he was chosen by Christ to spread the gospel first among the Gentiles, and he was then given the privilege to speak officially for Christ. And the, the term apostle means one officially sent forth, just like an ambassador is one who speaks on behalf of, if you will. And uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ is officially sent forth by Jesus Christ. So he had all of Christ's authority with him, yet he served. He served, and yet he had authority. He was under Christ, and yet he was also at the same time a representative of Jesus Christ. And there again is the model for spiritual leadership. The submissive, sacrificial obedience of the slave with the strength, boldness, and courage of an apostle. What a combination. This is who Peter is. This is the authority and the basis upon which he speaks. Now, look at the next paragraph in verse 1. He says, to those, you see those first, those first words? To those. Stop right there. Who are the those? Who are the those? Who's he writing to? Well, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, remember? He said that he's writing this second letter. So presumably he's writing to those people that he, who received his first letter. If you go back to chapter 1 of, uh, of 1 Peter, just turn back a couple of pages. Chapter 1, look at verses 1 and 2 with me real quickly. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen. So he's writing to the elect church scattered in the Gentile world. Now, we don't know who they are with any... Any, uh, uh, any more specifically than that, they are predominantly Gentiles. Uh, certainly there were some Jews also in the fellowship. Second uh, Peter was probably written a year or so after First Peter was written. Uh, it was written under the reign of Nero. Nero died in the year 68 A.D. First Peter was written in 64 A.D. Uh, he died under the persecution of Nero, so he must have died before Nero died. So it was probably a year or two after that. The point I want to make, it's a prison letter. He's in prison. He identifies that in chapter 1, verse 14 of Second Peter. He says he's about to lose his life. So the timing is important for us to understand. Tradition tells us, of course, that Peter was crucified, uh, but he was crucified upside down. Uh, they were going to crucify him, and he said, I don't, I'm not worthy to be crucified uh, like my master. Crucify me upside down. And his wife was crucified right next to him. So uh, these are his final words. These are his final words prior to his death. Final words to us from this bigger-than-life man about how to face false teachers, how to face false teaching. You have to, you have to picture this. His, his greatest desire for the church is that they know the truth. And with his very last words to the church, he writes them about this issue. Is this an important issue? Absolutely. Absolutely. And he begins where he has to begin. The first line of defense is our salvation. So he begins then to describe in chapter 1 our salvation. And he's going to tell us three things about our salvation. He's going to tell us first about the source of our salvation. The source of our salvation. 
Secondly, he's going to tell us about the scope of our salvation. And thirdly, the certainty of our salvation. If you're to know your salvation, you must know its source, its scope, and its certainty. Otherwise, you are, you are a prey for false teachers and false doctrine. You must know your salvation. Now remember, when he wrote the first letter to these same people, two major themes that were threaded through that first letter, those, those five chapters, two major themes, were the themes of, do you remember? They both begin with S. Submission and suffering. Submission and suffering. Now, are those easy themes? Are those easy things for us to embrace? No, no. Uh, you have to know that submission and suffering are probably two of the most powerful ways to live the Christian life. Two of the most powerful ways to resist the devil. Two of the most powerful ways if you are to avoid false teachers. False teachers, false doctrine are going to come and they're going to try to get you to what? Go the easy way, take the easy route. What did the devil do? Did the devil try to talk Jesus out of suffering? Yeah, sure he did. He talked talk him out of it. You don't have to go to the cross. Just bow down to me. You don't have to die, remember? The devil tried to tempt Jesus to take the easy way out. Indeed, he tried to talk Jesus to take into taking matters into his own hands. When you are willing to suffer for righteousness, mark this, when you are willing to suffer for righteousness, there is a great temptation to back away from that and take matters into your own hands, isn't there? And the same issue with submission. Submission means I'm going to submit to appropriate authorities. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to do my own thing. I'm not going to do what I'm tempted to do. All false doctrine is going to somehow address one or both of those two issues, the issue of suffering and the issue of submission. And so following on his first letter, he writes a second letter to underscore for those people the importance of recognizing false teachers because they're going to try to undermine your confidence in God, your willingness to wait on Him, your willingness to trust Him, and not take matters into your own hands. Such an important, such an important reality. Most of the time, we rush into the vacuum, we rush into the gap, and we take matters into our own hands, we lean on our own understanding, and we think we know best. Because it's either too uncomfortable, we don't want to wait, we don't want to submit, no one's going to tell me what to do, etc., 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 etc. Am I making sense? So, uh, these two letters are bound together in a very real sense. In the beginning, he tells us what some significant issues are if we're to be successful and fruitful in our life. And then secondly, he warns against the false teachers. Now, let's look at the, at the source. Look at verse 1. Three words I want to point out to you in verse 1. Those who have received. Who have received. This means that our salvation is something received. Our salvation is something received. You say, well, I knew that. Okay, good. I'm glad. But I just want to repeat it to you. <laughs> it is something received. And it is received as a gift. This is sometimes where it gets a little fuzzy for people. It's received as a gift. As a gift. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Apostle Paul underscores that. He says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is salvation. It's a gift. It's received. So Peter says, to those who have received. We have received salvation. Now the word received is translated from a, from a, a rather uncommon word in the Greek. It's not a very common word in the Greek and it means literally to have assigned to one. To have assigned to one or to have fall to one by lot. 
Now, there's an interesting derivation of this word. Do you remember in the Old Testament how uh, the, uh, the Jews would cast lots? And you can look in your concordance and look up the word lots, and you can see there's probably a good half a dozen verses that address this issue of casting lots. That was a way in which God could providentially control uh, earthly circumstances to crystal clearly reveal his will. It's like if we were living back in the old times, we'd flip a coin. We don't do that today. You don't say, well, let's flip a coin, find out what God's will is. No, 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 no. God has clearly revealed his will. Ancient people did not have God's will clearly revealed to them. We do. And so they would cast lots to find out what God's will was about something. Uh, the priests wore a, uh, uh, an emblem. They wore uh, a thing called the, the Urim and the Thummim. Now, we don't really have a clue what that was. Uh, it was kind of like red light, green light. Made very obvious God's will. Uh, God would somehow make these, this symbolism evidence something. We're, we, don't, we don't have a clue, really, uh, what that was all about. But the casting of the lots was the same way. But this word, from the Greek that's translated received in our text, uh, this word came to mean given by an allotment. This important word, given by an allotment. And it clearly refers then to something not attained by personal effort. If something is given to you by allotment, it's not given to you because you deserve it. It's not given to you because of your effort. It's not given to you because of your skill or your worthiness but something that came purely and solely from God as God controlled the giving of it. So what we have received, our salvation, has come from God purely and solely as God has controlled the giving of it. He has allotted it to us. In fact, this word, uh, so is it designated that... uh, in that sense, that most all of the Greek lexicons, if you have a Greek lexicon, it's, you can look up Greek words in it and you find the derivations and the meanings of the different words. Most all the Greek lexicons uh, in a Greek language say that it means to obtain by divine will. All of that with that word received. He says, you have received, to those who have received. The idea is you have obtained by divine will. It's God's will, not because you deserve it, not because you're so cool, not because you're pretty, not because you're handsome, not because you have a good hair day. It's by God's will. God would use the casting of lots as a way to reveal his will. And so uh, the casting of lots and this word received, they became synonymous. So to receive by lot meant to receive by divine will. So when people would cast their lots, they'd receive from God. Uh, that was that they received by God's will. This is what God's will says. So the same idea behind the word receive. So Peter's writing then to believers who have received their faith because God willed to give it to them. They've received it because God willed to give it to them. That's an important truth. If you're to know your salvation... The first thing you must know is that you have received a faith, and that faith God willed to give to you. Now, what does he mean by faith? Well, does he mean, we have a couple of options. Does he mean the objective truth of Christianity? Does he mean the fact of Christianity, what we believe, its teachings and doctrines? Or does he believe the subjective uh, emphasis, and that means the power to believe? I believe that he means, when he says that you have received a faith, When he refers to faith, I believe he's talking about the power to believe. You have received a power to believe. Salvation is by what? Faith. Salvation is by faith. How many knew that? Salvation is by faith. That faith comes from God as to its initiation. Saving faith is from God. Now listen to this. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter said that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Do you remember that? We did an exhaustive study of that. 
several years ago. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Now, Peter started out that first letter. Mark this, please. Peter started out that first letter talking about God's side, meaning God elected us. That's how he started the first letter. He starts his second letter talking about our side. We believed. We believed. But again, it is a faith received from God. So faith, then, is the capacity to believe. Faith is the capacity to trust God. And God gives it. God gives it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Familiar verse to many. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, meaning the faith, is not even yours. That too is a gift from God. So again, we see that salvation, including the faith to believe, is a part of the gift of God. And to underscore that, we have to remember where we came from and what our condition was. That required God to give us the faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul tells us that our, our minds were blinded so that we could not uh, believe the glorious light of the gospel. He says, God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see, the idea is cannot comprehend, cannot understand the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, again, a uh, clear indication of our condition before uh, we were saved. We were held captive in death. He says, we were, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were dead to God. He said, well, I, I believed in God before I've been Christian. Yeah, but you didn't believe in the God of the Bible. You didn't believe in the God of the Bible. You may have believed in the God of your own construct, the God of your own design, but not the God of the Bible. I promise you that. In verse 2 of that passage, he says that we were, in effect, servants of the rule of the kingdom of the air. We were, we were enslaved in the kingdom of darkness. We followed the, the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That was our condition. We were, we were children of disobedience. We were headed for eternal damnation. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were blind in the darkness. We could not see. And beloved, if we believe, it is because God has granted to us an allotment of faith so that we may believe. He gets all the glory. That's the point. He gets all the glory. And every time we want to claim something there, we detract from his glory. He says, I will share my glory with nobody. I'm a jealous God. And righteously so. And righteously so. Even when it comes to uh, the matter of spiritual gifts. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, begins a short discussion of spiritual gifting. And Paul, the Apostle Paul in that passage, says that we, we ought to think of ourselves not more highly than we ought, but rather with sober judgment. Now notice, in accordance with what? The measure of faith that God has what? Given you. So God has given us, obviously, a measure of faith. Faith comes from God. It is measured out and granted to us for our salvation and for service. It's from God. It's from God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23 Another, just another in indication. He says, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is, that, is he just expressing warm sentiments? No. What's he telling us? He's telling us that love, faith, and peace come from God. All part of the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit works in us. He's come from God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. He says, it has been granted you by God for Christ's sake to believe. Man, I don't know if there is a more humbling verse than that. It has been granted you for Christ's sake to believe. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for, for granting me the faith to believe. Thank you, Lord. What's he saying? You can't believe unless God gives you the faith. You can't believe unless God gives you the faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, another passage, talks about the spiritual gift of faith. And that faith comes by what? The Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives it, like all other 
spiritual gifts. The ability to believe for salvation, the ability to believe for service, the ability to believe in intercessory prayer are all given measures of faith that come from God. He is the one who gives this kind of faith. It is not a natural faith. It's not a human faith. Human faith cannot cannot grasp. It cannot comprehend. It cannot apprehend salvation. Human faith cannot grab salvation. We need to understand that. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Why did a great number of people believe and turn to the Lord, do you think? Because the hand of the Lord was there. God. God was giving people faith to believe. God was moving. God was in their midst working. Now listen. Human faith exists, does it not? Human faith exists. Uh, we all have the power to believe some things, right? All of us. We, we, if we didn't have human faith, we wouldn't get up in the morning. Right? We believe certain things. We believe the water is safe to use. How many brushed your teeth this morning? Oh, not everybody. Oh. Well, you got up this morning, you put some water on your toothbrush, and you brushed your teeth, and presumably, and you didn't run out and check the water, have it tested. You, what? You believed by faith that it was safe to use. Human faith, natural faith. Most all of us drove here this morning, did we not? Most all of us drove a car. And when you believed, you, you, you turned on ignition, you started your car, whether you know it or not, uh, your fire, your, uh, your uh, spark plugs fired off. There were a number of explosions that went on uh, inside your car. And you believed that when you turned that ignition on, that your car would not explode, didn't you? You believe that by what? Human faith. It's a natural human faith. You believe that every time you do that. And if you have a big car, like if you have a big SUV or something with a big V8, when you turn your ignition on, there are eight explosions inside your engine as soon as you start that car. Eight explosions in a machine full of gasoline. (laughs) Think about that. Eight explosions in a machine full of gasoline, but you believe that whoever made it made it safe. That's an example of human faith. You have faith to fly in an airplane. How many have flown in an airplane? Do you ever marvel at how these things get up in the air and fly? Do you ever wonder? I've had people say to me, and I've said it myself, you know, something like, and I know the principle, but it's still marvelous. I, I never understand how this thing stays in the air. I, I, I like to ride on the bike path whenever I get a chance to go down and ride, and you go under the airport, you know, on the, on the flight path of the airplane taking off over the ocean. You ever watch a 747 getting up? I just sit there and I marvel and I say, come on, you can make it, you can make it. If you've never watched a 747, it's just like they just, I don't know, just any minute they're just going to fall back. They're just going to lumber up in the air. Human faith. You fly in an airplane. You fly in, you have faith to get in an airplane, fly in an airplane, and you don't even know who's up in the cockpit. You don't even know if there's a pilot there. That's human faith. You have faith to eat in a restaurant, even though you've never been in the kitchen. Don't go in the restroom. You have faith to eat in the restaurant, even when you've been in the kitchen. That's natural faith. That's human faith. It has nothing to do with salvation. Human faith has nothing to do with salvation. The faith that you have as a human being is not the kind of faith that redeems anybody. That faith that saves is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Now listen again to Peter. Verse 1. To those who have received faith. To those who have received faith. The first letter written to those who are chosen. The second letter to those who have received faith. The two go together. We're chosen by God, but not without faith. But that faith is a gift. You must believe. You must believe, but God gives you the faith to believe. So God initiates faith. 
when the Holy Spirit awakens the dead soul in response to hearing the word of Christ. And so faith comes from God. Mark this, please. Faith comes from God. And yet all men are called on to believe. Are all men called on to believe? Yes, they are. And those who don't believe are damned forever. May I suggest to you, there's a mystery there. There's a profound mystery. And there's been a great battle in the church over the millennia to try to resolve that mystery. I believe there is no resolution to that, this side of heaven. You have both truths. God is sovereign, man is responsible. You cannot reconcile the two. People have tried. They've come up with, come up with, with desperate kinds of explanations. But all those explanations fly in the face of Scripture. I'm going to suggest to you, God is sovereign. He gives the faith. We believe. All men are responsible to believe. We have to leave it there. If you press it one step further, now you're accusing God of being unjust and unrighteous. And we know that he's not. We have a limited, finite understanding. We cannot comprehend some of these mysteries. And may I suggest to you, this is one of the most profound mysteries in the Bible. And this has destroyed more people's faith when they've tried to resolve it. Let me caution you, you cannot resolve it. I don't care what anybody tells you. I don't care what anybody tells you. You cannot resolve it. Trust me. Now, please follow Peter's thought. To those who have received faith as precious as ours. To those who have received faith as precious as ours. This is such a marvelous truth. He's packed so much into this first verse. A faith as precious as ours. The word he uses uh, when he talks about this uh, is isotimon. It means the same kind. The same kind of faith. Equal faith. Literally, it's translated a faith that is equally precious. And by the way, that word precious is a is a favorite word of Peter. He uses it in both letters as you read through it. You find the word precious there, the word precious there, the word precious there. He likes that word for some reason or other. So what he's saying is that we have all received the same precious, valued, honored faith. The faith we have is equally precious. And the spiritual privileges that faith brings are equally precious. What's he saying? There are no first-class Christians. There are no second-class Christians. There are no first-class Christians. There are no second-class Christians. We both have the same faith. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. When he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. We are all equal in God's sight. God is no respecter of persons. It's not your birthright. It's not anything else. It's not your education. It's not your talent. It's not your male or female. You become a Christian. You have received a precious faith. Equally precious. He says, and I love this, as precious as ours. What's he talking about there? I think he's dealing with a traditional problem in the early church. This was the Jewish-Gentile issue. If you, if you understand anything about people, you know that everybody has prejudices. Everybody has biases. In the first century, there were terrific biases. The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. When the gospel first went forward, it went to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So the early church was composed first of Jews and then Gentiles. You've got these people from, from disparate backgrounds now thrown together, one in Christ. And you see throughout all these letters, at some point or other, all these epistles to the churches, at some point or other, uh, the writers, Paul or Peter or John, are trying to address some aspect of divisions. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that he wants to, among other, among other reasons, to get to Rome is to, is to address some of the conflicts in the early church between Jews and Gentiles, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. There was conflict. How many realize when you become a Christian, you are not totally perfect overnight? When you become a Christian, you come into the church, you're still dragging some of your baggage, some of your biases, some of your prejudices, some of the things you're not even aware of necessarily. And so I think that what Peter is doing, 
He's saying to these Gentiles who are being persecuted to give them assurance and confidence in the midst of their persecution. He opens the letter and he says, you have received a faith as precious as ours. That's Jews. That's Jews. So they're not out there alone. That they're no different from the Jews. And Peter was a great champion of the Gentiles, by the way. So it's very logical for him to carry that theme forward into this letter. If you look back at Acts chapter 11, you see him championing uh, the work of God in the Gentiles. He's saying the Gentiles are in. He'd gone up and he preached to Cornelius and, and you see this great beginning harvest of Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Now, prior to this, all Christians were, believe, were Jewish people. And the Jews now were going, what's the deal with the Gentiles? And in chapter 11, Peter addresses this to, to his Jewish brothers. Uh, look at verse 15. He says, as I began to speak, and he says, when I, when I, when I began to speak to this, to uh, Cornelius in his household, he says, the, the Holy Spirit came upon them as he had come upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I remember what happened to us, and same thing happened to them. So he says, if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Apparently the Gentiles are in. So you see him championing the Gentiles. If you go to Acts chapter 15, now Peter again is arguing in favor of the Gentiles before the Jerusalem council. This great wave of Gentiles now are becoming part of the church. And the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are saying, well, well should we make them uh, become Jews first? Should they have to undergo some certain rites of initiation? And so they debated this. In verse 6 of chapter 15 of the book of Acts, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question, the question of how they should receive the Gentiles. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. What a gift. What a privilege. And he says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by what? See, he gave the Gentiles the same faith that he gave the Jews. That's all Peter is saying. Verse 11. He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. And so you see in both of those passages, Peter's advocating for the Gentiles. And when you carry all that kind of thinking into the second letter, he's saying the same thing. He says, I'm writing to you Gentiles, from the first chapter, from the first Peter, who have received a faith the same and as precious as the faith that we Jews have received. We're all one. So First Peter and Second Peter are written to scattered believers in the Gentile world. God has given all the same saving faith. The source of salvation, God. The source of salvation, God. He gave us the faith. Now what's the means? What is the means of that giving of faith? Verse 1, again. Can you tell in verse 1 of chapter, of chapter 1 of Second Peter? What's the means whereby God gave us faith? Through what? This is very important. Through your own righteousness. Through your works. Because you deserve it. Well, because God looked down the halls of time and he saw that you would be a good person, you would be worthy, and then he gave it to you. No. How did he give it? What's the means? To the righteousness, to note this, to the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the means. We have faith to believe and we are saved because God's righteousness is given to us. Because God's righteousness is given to us. It is the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that is given to us, that is granted to us, that is imputed to us. So much confusion over this. So much confusion on the part of so many Christians. It's God's righteousness 
that is given to us. We have faith only because God gives it. We have faith only because God gives it. And we are saved only because He grants us His righteousness. Know your salvation. And it's the righteousness of who? Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle Paul's point. It's his main point in Romans chapter 3, verse 26. Notice, he says, God did what he did to demonstrate at the present time, he's talking about crucifying Christ, he's talking about the death of Christ, he did this to demonstrate at the present time his justice so as to be just and the one who, what? Justified. You see that word justifies? In your mind, think justified now means righteous. God has justified me through the death of Christ uh, to all who have what? Faith in Jesus Christ. He's justified me. Now I have received his righteousness. God makes me righteous. Romans chapter 4 verse 5. To the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as what? Righteousness. The fact that you believe. You don't work for it. We don't deserve it. The fact that you believe in what Jesus did. This is a work of God. Our part is to believe. And when you believe, the fact that you believe, then God credits that to you as making you righteous. You are right in God's eyes. Isn't that glorious? In almost all of the salvation texts of the New Testament, you can do a study of this. In almost all the salvation texts in the New Testament, where you have faith and righteousness, the righteousness is the holiness of God. The righteousness is the holiness of God given to man. What did God say? You shall be what? Holy because I am holy. If I'm to have a relationship with God, I must be like God. I must have those things given to me because I cannot make myself like Him. No matter how many good works I try, no matter how many prayers I pray, no matter how many good deeds I do, I cannot make myself righteous. God must give me His righteousness. And you think of that also as holiness. And he says, you shall be holy because I'm holy. I'm going to make you holy because I want a relationship with you. And you can't be holy. I'm going to make you holy. You, you trust me. You believe in me. Woo, man, oh man. Know your salvation. God, isn't this glorious? So when God gives you faith to believe, when he gives you faith to believe, he gives you righteousness to be saved. He gives you righteousness to be saved. It is only the righteousness of God given to us, it's only the righteousness of God imputed to us that covers our sin. Nothing else does. People say, well, yeah, but I'm, but I'm a good person, and, and I sure I do some bad things, but I do more good things than bad things. And after all, God grades on the curve, doesn't he? No! <laughs> he doesn't grade on the curve. It's only the righteousness of God that is given to me, that is imputed to me, that is granted to me by faith, and that faith God gives me that covers my sin and makes me acceptable to God. God makes us righteous. God makes us righteous. God grants us His righteousness. We are clothed in His righteousness. Oh, clothe me in the robes of righteousness, Lord, Isaiah says. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Again, uh, we're told that the law was insufficient and people still try to do something legal that makes them right. He says, therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. No forgiveness of sins without Jesus. And through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. The law of Moses, keeping the rules, keeping the law, doesn't make us right with God. I don't know about you, but I was raised, taught, I was taught that if you keep the Ten Commandments, then if you died, you're keeping the Ten Commandments, you'd go to heaven. 
I discovered very early, guess what? I couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. And the harder I tried, the greater I failed. So it was very, very early on that I quit. I gave up. And then someone shared the gospel with me, the good news. And they said, it wasn't by the law, it's by faith. God gives you the faith. I said, what? The free gift? How long has this been going on? (laughs) See, this is the kind of righteousness we're talking about. It's not by the law. It's not by my own efforts. It's not because I deserve it, not because I'm so cute, not because I talk good. It's nothing of me. It's simply because I believe and God gave me the faith to believe and then he gives me this righteousness. Oh, I love it. Now notice, please. We are receiving the power to believe equally. No difference. Everybody. No difference. And then salvation by the righteousness of who? I want you to notice this. This is very important. Salvation by the righteousness of who? Did you say God the Father? He's calling Jesus Christ what? Our God and Savior. He's calling Jesus Christ our God and Savior. Righteousness does originate with God, but it flows down to us through Jesus Christ. Peter here is talking about one person. He says that our God Our God is Savior Jesus Christ. Our Savior Jesus Christ is God. Note this, Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is, now note, what does he say? Who is what? God over all forever praised, amen. Who is Christ? He's God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Flash. Jesus is God in the flesh. Tell that to your Mormon friends. Titus chapter 2 verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who? Who's appearing? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. There are Literally, many, many, many verses that speak to the deity of Christ. I'm just picking out a few for you. The writer of Hebrews, quoting the Old Testament, says, About the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. So Jesus is obviously being referred to there as God, who will last forever and ever. His throne will last forever and ever. His righteousness will be the scepter of his kingdom. In uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Rich passage, isn't it? So what Peter's doing, what Peter's doing now in in 2 Peter here, in in talking to us about this righteousness of Jesus Christ, he's doing the same thing he did when he preached on the day of Pentecost. He took the Old Testament name for God and he applies it to Jesus. The Old Testament name for God was Savior was Savior. Over and over and over and over. You find that that title referred to God as being Savior. Savior, he applied it to Jesus. When he was born, he was called, he was to be called what? Jesus. Do you remember? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He was to be called Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. He was born to be a Savior. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3. God, here's God through the prophet of Isaiah. God describing himself. He says, I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your what? Savior. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no other Savior. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 15. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. Verse 21 of Isaiah 45. Was it not I, the Lord? There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. So again and again and again, Isaiah chapter 60. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. So you see this term, this, this title uh, that God gives himself throughout the Old Testament, uh, Peter applies then to Jesus. So when Peter 
says that we have received from God the power to believe, to believe in, with an equally precious faith, whether we are Jew or Gentile. And we are saved, therefore, by faith as the righteousness of God comes to us. It comes as the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is our God and Savior. Let no mistake be made about that. Jesus Christ is God. He's God in the flesh, and he is our Savior. And it's by his righteousness that we are saved. So the source of salvation, beloved, is God. The source of salvation is God. He allots to us the faith to believe, and he provides it with his own righteousness. The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Salvation is God's gift in every sense. Salvation is God's gift in every sense. Know your salvation. That's its source. Next time, we're going to look at its scope. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, help us to know these things. Help us, Lord, as we read your word, as we study it, to be...